You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. everybody. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Daniel chapter 3. And uh, I would like for us just to um, give a round of applause for Jody Dillon and Logan Keener because these parking lots are clear and our water is working in large part because of these guys. So can we just thank them? As of, as of yesterday at... Um, 2 p.m., our pipes were still frozen in this building, and um, Logan came up here with his dad who was in town, and they had a blowtorch, and so how cool is it to know that uh, we have a guy who can uh, run a blowtorch on Saturday and play guitar for us and lead us on a Sunday. Um, also, thank you to whoever left all the gluten-free stuff at uh, my office door, um, whoever you are. That's, uh, I'm very thankful for that. So, um, hey, if you are a guest today, I want to welcome you. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And on behalf of the pastors and members, we are glad that you chose to be with us. Our hope is that, um, that you will feel welcome, that you won't feel like you're just a number here. What you see is, is a very imperfect family, a very imperfect people who are standing in need of one perfect person together. And that person is Jesus Christ. And, um, if you're interested in learning more about our family, you can do that by going to the crossing, uh, .com, our website, or you can fill out a little connect card. It's there in the back of the seat in front of you. Leave it on your, um, on your seat. And I didn't mention this in the, in the first service, but we also have a basics class, which is right after this, um, service. And it's for those who are interested in knowing more about our church. And if you're interested in that, I'm sure uh, we could find room for you so you could attend that as well. So, um, with that, uh, Daniel 3 is where we are going to be this morning. And the basic idea behind this series that we're in through the book of Daniel is that we are living in a brand new cultural moment in the United States. The ground beneath our feet has shifted and we are now in what sociologists refer to as a post-Christian society. And just to be clear about what we mean by that, when we say a post-Christian society, we don't mean there are no Christians left in America. We don't mean the church is dead. But what we mean is that the secularization of our culture as a whole is near complete. And we're put another way, say you're a 13-year-old living in America now, and you're you know growing up on Netflix and Hulu and you have an iPhone. It is easier for you than ever before to not only live a secular life, but to write God completely out of your mind and still be considered just a normal person. And so the question that we need to be asking as a church is, how do we as followers of Jesus keep following Jesus in a post-Christian world? Um, how do we continue to swim upstream in this Babylonian type culture like ours that is running hostile to the way of God? And with that question in mind, we're going to continue in our story through the book of Daniel. We'll start in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to make comments kind of as I go. I'll draw some implications and then will be done. And as always, just so you know, I'm reading from the NIV translation. And if you want the notes for the sermon today, it's on the Version Bible app, so you can grab those. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high. That's about 90 feet tall. 
and six cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all other uh, provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, wow, even the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship, you will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the old zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and they worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so, uh, real fast, just set the context for you to make sure you're caught up in the story. The Babylonians, what we have learned so far, have um, besieged and conquered the city of Jerusalem. They then took the best and brightest from Jerusalem and then wheeled them off through the six-month journey in the desert as prisoners to be exiles in Babylon. And while they are now there in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, right, the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world, the one who is the leader of this global military superpower, builds a 90-foot statue. So just kind of imagine this. And this statue represents him. It represents the nation state of Babylon. And he says, here's what I want you to do. After he kind of gathers the who's who's of society, he says, whenever my band begins to play, I want everyone in this place to bow down and worship my statue. So that's what's going on. And therefore, what happens? The music starts to play, as we just read, and everybody bows down. Or do they? Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. So they're obviously being kind of suck-ups here. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. But... There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So just kind of imagine this. You're in the sea of people. There are tens of thousands there in attendance, and everybody there is bowing down and worshiping this statue. Everyone except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men who continue to stand tall while everyone else is bowing down. This, for the record, is a peaceful protest. Notice there's no bullhorn. There's no rally. There's no storming the nation's capital. There's no hashtag never Nebuchadnezzar, right, or or whatever, or something like that. These are just three men who are quietly and kindly saying, nope, not going to bow down, not going to serve these false gods. And by the way, if you're like, wait, where's Daniel? Like, Daniel's not mentioned. Like, is he bowing down? Like, is Daniel compromising? Nope. According to Daniel chapter 2, verse 49, because God's hand is on Daniel, he has been elevated to second in command in Babylon. So he's back at the king's palace running the empire. 
which is pretty crazy. So here is, you know, these three guys without their friend Daniel. They say, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship. I don't care if everybody else is doing it or not. And so look what King Nebuchadnezzar does. Verse 13, he became furious with rage. And he summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these three men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not only serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, apparently the, the writer of Daniel really likes making lists. Um, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. I like you guys. I'll give you another chance. But if you do not worship you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I mean, talk about a megalomaniac. This guy's like, you have any idea who you're talking to? I'm the most powerful man on the planet. Nobody says no to me. You say no to me, I'm going to throw you in a furnace. And hey, guys, when I throw you in the furnace, who's going to save you then? Nobody, not even your God. That's how powerful I am. And this guy's a full-blown narcissist. So here's the threat he breathes down, bow or burn, and here's how they respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys are such a non-anxious presence. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. Isn't that awesome? We're not, we're not, you know, we're not going to defend ourselves. No reason to be defensive. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And look at this, he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. I love this reply. And some of you like, you need to, to get this today. There are some of you maybe here this morning and you have given up on the fact that God can and is able to deliver you, that he is able to save you. And you need to know today that what we see in story after story after story is that God's arm is not too short. God is famous all through the Bible for taking the impossible and making it possible, for taking nothing and creating something. And because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that this is true, because they know that God is an all-powerful, miracle-working God, when the king threatens them with the fiery furnace, when the most powerful man on the planet is clenching them with his iron fist, what comes out is not just like this cowardice. What comes out is this conviction that God can and will save us. But then it goes on, and this is like one of the most like, I don't know, like gospel punk rock, if that's even possible, statements of all time. It's one of the craziest lines in the Bible. They said, God can save us, he will save us, but even if, I would underline that even if, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Guys, this is faith on steroids. What they just said is, is look, if God doesn't do what we think he will do, if God doesn't do even what we want him to do, if he does not deliver us, we still are going to obey him. We're still not going to bow down to your statue or serve your gods. It's incredible to me. And I just want to stop right here and ask you, I know I'm in front of a crowd, but This is a crowd of individuals. So I just want to ask you personally, when God doesn't behave, how do you behave? In other words, when God doesn't do what you want him to do, what do you do? One of my prayers this past week is that God would cultivate in me 
and in our church, this even if kind of faith. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that says, even if God doesn't deliver me, I'm still going to be obedient. Even if God doesn't heal me, even if God doesn't give me the promotion or answer that prayer or play by my rules, I still am not going to bow down. I am going to choose to continue to worship my God. Sometimes I hear people say, man, Jared, if if we're going to see a change in our nation, we need to see a change in the White House. Guys, change does not start in the White House. Change starts in your house. And it starts in my house. It starts whenever we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get this rock-solid conviction that says, even if God doesn't do what I want him to do, I still am going to obey him. I still am going to choose to give him my life. This is what we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When faced with the pressures of society to conform, when they are told, you've got two options and two options only, bow or or burn, what do they choose? They say, you do with us whatever you want to do, but we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to conform to the way of the Babylonian empire. Would this not have been so easy to compromise? One of my favorite things about our church is our, our pre-gathering prayer meeting. We have it every Sunday at 8.15 a.m. where we just pray over each of you. and you're wel- Anybody's welcome to that, by the way. And one of the great things about the prayer meeting is we'll dive into the text and then we'll just see what kind of what the Holy Spirit shares with each of us and then we'll kind of pray it. And Tim Parrott, who is in that uh, with us this morning, he was talking about how he's like, you know, the truth is if I would have been there, it would have been so easy for me to logically come to the conclusion that it's okay for me to bow down. I would have said like, hey, look, if I'm dead, I'm no good then, right? So like I'm one of the only good dudes left in Babylon, so I'm going to bow down to the statue and hey, God knows my heart. And, you know, even if I'm doing something wrong, he's gracious and compassionate and he'll forgive me. So I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Wouldn't that have been easy? But these guys refuse to do that. Nope, not compromising. Nope, I'm not bowing down. And look at what happens next. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude or his face towards them began to change. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. That's just a literary way of saying he made the furnace as hot as it'll possibly go. And he commanded some of his strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men were wearing robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the furnace was so hot, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men were firmly tied, and they fell into the blazing furnace. So think about this. I mean, you know, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are completely non-anxious. They're totally at peace. But the guy who's actually supposed to be the most powerful man in the world is freaking out. He is raging. I mean, he's he's flying off the handle. He gets his own soldiers killed because he got it so hot. He's not even thinking logically anymore. And then, you know, I don't know a whole lot about uh, torture, but I would think if you threw someone into a fire, you don't have to tie them up first to kill them. Am I thinking right about that? Am I missing something? But he's just losing. He's like, we're going to tie them up as well so there's no way they can escape. And then we're going to throw them in the furnace. I mean, he is out of control. He throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. And then look at this. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, wait a minute. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see... One, two, three, four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Pay attention to that because we're going to come back to it at the end. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire in them. It's not even like a campfire type smell. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. So now he's praising the one true God. They trusted God and defied the king's command. Isn't it great that King Nebuchadnezzar is now speaking to the third person? It's like so Kanye. You know, he's like, hey, they trusted God and they defied the king's command. Speaking about himself. And I love this next line. And they were willing to give up their very lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's having this conversion experience, but his heart's still a little far from God, granted, right? He needs to kind of run through our spiritual formation paradigm for a couple years, go through some sanctification, but you got to start somewhere. Verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Is that not a crazy story? What a crazy story. What in the world does it have to do with us? Like what exactly is this all about? And first off, just to clarify, this is not a children's story. How many of you grew up in a Sunday school class with a felt board? Let's see a show of hands. Okay, quite a few of you. Was this not the best felt board story of all time? I mean, you had the, the golden image. You had the fiery furnace. You had crazy King Nebuchadnezzar who looked like a wild animal. You had Shadrach. You know, you, you had all of it. It was great. Um, some of you, you might even remember going to a youth camp when you were a kid and there was an evangelist there and they were teaching from Daniel chapter 3 on the dangers of secular music and how if you listen to secular music, you're bowing down to the false gods of the world. Anybody else experience that? Adam, because he grew up in the same church that I did. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, you have no idea how lucky you are. It's like, I remember being a kid. It's like, all I want to do is listen to Hootie and the Blowfish. But no, Daniel chapter 3, you know, it's like, the zithers got me, you know. And we laugh at that. But look, this is not a children's novel. We like to reduce it to that because it makes us feel a lot more comfortable. But the truth is, this is a story about two of the most controversial topics in the United States of America. And you know what it is? politics and religion, or more specifically, nationalism, which is what you get when you combine politics and religion to form this really ugly, nasty beast. And I'm going to beat up on nationalism for a little bit this morning, but before I do that, let me just make sure I'm clear. Nationalism is not the same thing as patriotism, okay? So if you're listening to this right now, and you're like, man, like, I, I, I love my country, like I fly the American flag, like I weep at the Star-Spangled Banner. That's great. Like this sermon is not about you, okay? It, it's not. Like that's patriotism, that's good. What I'm talking about today is nationalism. And when we're talking about nationalism, what we are talking about is the temptation to swap out the kingdom of God for our country and to swap out Jesus for our political kind of candidate of choice. Does that make sense? And what I would submit to you this morning is this is a huge part of American culture that we all find ourselves swimming in today. We look at Daniel 3 and we kind of scoff at it. And we're like, a 90-foot statue? Like, we laugh that off as like pre-modern and silly. And we're like, we would never do something like that. But what do we have in the New York Harbor? 
the Statue of Liberty. And how tall is the Statue of Liberty? It's not 90 feet high. It's 305 feet high and 6 inches. I looked it up on Wikipedia. That's three times taller than the statue in Daniel chapter 3. And I know that we don't literally bow down to it like at the most and maybe get a selfie with it. But what I would say is that for many Americans, we are all tempted to worship what that stands for. And what does that stand for? It is a country that is built on the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at all costs. There's many of us that tend to just kind of give our lives to that system of thinking. Um, I think about the national anthem, which you know if you've ever gone to a sporting event, there's a somber, almost worshipful moment where a hot, kind of this hush falls over the crowd. We place our hands over our heart, and then as we do that, who do we pledge an allegiance to? Not to Jesus, not to the kingdom of God, but we pledge allegiance to our flag, to the United States of America that we claim is a country that surely is under God. I remember working for a church years ago when we would have a patriotic service every 4th of July. And in our patriotic service, we would spend our time singing songs from each kind of like branch of military. And I remember, you know, sitting there one year and just thinking, like, I, can't, I couldn't help but wonder, like, what does Jesus think about this? Like, what's happening right now? Because as I could see it, our church would sing more passionately about these songs, these military songs, and songs like Amazing Grace. It was like we would get more emotionally charged over the sacrifice that our soldiers made than the sacrifice that our Savior had made. And I don't want you to misunderstand me today. Listen, I, I am thankful for our veterans I am thankful for our soldiers. I am thankful for our country. I've got two grandfathers who I love dearly who fought in World War II. I have an aunt and an uncle that retired as colonels in the military. And so if you hear me preaching against, like, the military or against our country, like, you're making that up. Like, I'm not saying that. Like, I am all for our country, right, military, whatever. It's, It's great. But here's just the point I'm trying to make. Please hear me. The point I'm just trying to make is this. If you grew up pledging allegiance to a flag every single day, but only taught to go to Jesus when you needed something from him, the chances are your loyalties are probably going to be a little bit more lopsided than you know. Um, Some of you grew up and you heard this. America is a Christian nation. How many of you have heard that? Let me see a show of hands. I'm not saying you agree or disagree. Just how many of you heard that? Okay, pretty much everybody. We have been told America is a Christian nation, and simply because of the country we are born into, we have God's favor on our lives. Guys, that has never been true. It wasn't true in the past, and it certainly isn't true now. As Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman says in his commentary on Daniel 3, he says America, if you really study it from a non-biased perspective, it has always been more like Babylon than Israel, which is actually God's chosen people according to the Bible, if that's what you want to go off of. And so to be clear, guys, there are many things about our country that I love and we should celebrate, but we need to be very careful to never confuse our country with the kingdom and the way of God. We must be very careful, guys, not to forget that America is an empire. America is a part of what the Bible says is a world system that actually, by nature, runs 
contrary and hostile to the way of Jesus. And so please hear me. If you're here and you're like, man, nationalism, like I don't struggle with that at all. Like, bro, I don't even vote. Okay, fine. But the odds are, whether you realize it or not, just by default alone, by default of living in this country, there are going to be things where you are tempted, or there's going to be ways where you're going to be tempted to be shaped more by the American dream than you are by biblical Christianity. Just by default of living here, there's going to be a temptation to elevate culture over Christ. And there are all kinds of really subtle ways that we do this. And, and I'll give you several examples. And, and, and the first one's around youth sports. And if you're in youth sports, don't freak out. I'm not going to bash you. I'm just going to tell you kind of a narrative that we tend to hear around youth sports. When I was growing up, so this was not that long ago, not only would you not pr- have a game on a Sunday, you wouldn't even practice on a Sunday. I just wouldn't do it because it was considered, right, the Sabbath is a holy day. It's set aside for God and God alone. Right now, right, we're going to have practices, we're going to have games, we're going to have all weekend tournaments that kind of like pull us away, and we're going to put a lot of money into this, a lot of time into this, a lot of just all sorts of kind of investment into making sure that our kids are on the best team and, and get the best possible opportunity to become the best athlete they can be. And here's typically the story, at least I've heard. Maybe there's other stories out there. And I'm not saying that, by the way, anybody in our churches and youth sports believes this. I'm just saying here's the narrative that I typically hear from other people is that the reason we have to give our kids the best possible opportunity to become the best athlete they can be is so that hopefully one day they can get a scholarship to a JUCO or a D1. And the reason we got to make sure they get a scholarship to a college is because if they go to college, then they get a good job. And the reason they got to get a good job is so they can make a lot of money. And the reason they need to make a lot of money is because then they will be happy. Because that's called the American dream. And the truth is, like you can get all of that and still your kids be incredibly unhappy. Um, just to make sure, you know, I'm not beating up on just people in youth sports. Let's think about it like this. Materialism. There is this narrative in our country that the more you have, the happier you will be. I buy into it all the time. Man, if I could just make a little bit more money, just a little bit more, I'd be happy. Me and my wife were about this the other day, by the way. I didn't tell this in the first service, and, but I was just thinking about this. If you would have come to Jared Pickney when I was just getting married and said, hey, whenever you get married, you'll have this salary, you get to live in this kind of house, drive these kind of vehicles, do you think you'll be content? I'd be like, absolutely. Like, I wouldn't believe it. Like, that'd be crazy. I'm there. Do you think that I feel like it's enough? Not most of the time. Because there's this narrative that, bro, you're missing out. And if you can make, if you can get, if you can have, if you can consume just a little bit more, that'll be what does it. What about this? Individualism. We live in a highly individualistic society that says what matters, if I'm going to be happy, I don't need to do what's best for you and for the group, but I need to do what's best for me. Was that my phone, by the way, going off down there? Was it? Okay. You kind of grab it, bring it to me. Um, Is this awkward for anybody else? Make sure it's not my wife. Um, Actually, I was just putting on silent. Individualism, right? It's just, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Was that embarrassing? It's getting embarrassing. Okay, I'll be quiet. Um, and so, but individualism, it's all, we live in this weak group society that says, if I'm going to be happy, I don't need to do what's good for you or good for the church. I just need to do what's good for me. And none of us would ever say we believe that, but there's things we do all the time that says we believe that. Like I was thinking earlier about how, how many times someone will come up to me and be like, hey bro, I just got engaged. Or hey man, I just switched jobs. 
And like, they'll say, we talk about this, don't we, Adam? And it's like, they make these big life decisions. And we're like, did you talk to anybody about that? Like your missional community, your DNA, pastors, anybody? Like, but even a thought, like, why would I do that? Like, I'm going to do what's best for me. And I'm not going to involve other people and even figure like what would be good for other people. Like, it's just, it's, we live in that individualistic kind of narrative that I got to get mine. Um, another narrative we tend to believe is not necessarily materialism or individualism, but hedonism, which is this idea that I need to pursue pleasure at all costs. This is where our feelings begin to dominate us. And this is the kind of just therapeutic culture we live in right now where, you know, we do feeling check-ins here. If you've been around our church, you've heard us talk about that. There's nothing wrong with feeling check-ins. The problem is when we begin to believe the lie that I should just always do what I feel like doing. So if I feel like being gay, I'm going to be gay. And who are you to tell me I can't be gay? Or if I want to sleep with my girlfriend, even when we're not married, like, that's just a natural desire that I have. And who are you to tell me I can't do that? If I want to smoke, I want to drink, I want to whatever, I can do that because I feel like doing it. And you're being oppressive and legalistic or whatever else if you tell me that I can't do that. That's a narrative that's being spun in our country. And there's so many more examples that I can give. But the point I'm just trying to make is this. No matter who you are today, whether you believe in nationalism or not, we are all tempted to bow down to the expectations that our country, that our culture has put on us. By the way, these are expectations that if you were even to be able to meet them, you still wouldn't be fulfilled. And we need to be reminded of this over and over, man. When you go after an idol, an idol always promises you something that it can't deliver. It actually ends up giving you the opposite thing and begins to eat you alive. I think about the story of Moby. Um, Y'all have heard me tell this before. It's just one of my best examples I could think of. But he was a recording artist in the 90s and early 2000s. And... One day he received, he went to the MTV Movie Awards and he received like the best artist of the year. And then after that, he went to a party and it was at the tippity top of this hotel in Barcelona. And there were three rooms, one for Madonna, one for John Bon Jovi and one for Moby. And the who's who's were there and they were partying and they were celebrating this great kind of lifetime achievement. And according to Moby on a podcast I was listening to, he said that if the window in that room would have been big enough, I would have jumped out and killed myself. And the podcaster just was like, Why? And he said, because I gave my life to getting that kind of money and that kind of fame and that kind of respect. And I finally got there and I thought, that's it? It didn't give me what I thought it was going to give me. And I felt like if that wouldn't do it for me and I'd got everything I ever dreamed of, then what in the world would ever make me happy? So I thought I might as well just end my life. Again, that's what happens when you bow down to the idols of this world and never deliver my wife and I just watched a documentary called Framing Britney Spears. Anybody in here watch that? Anybody? I'm sure. Okay. One of the person who's, thank you for being honest, Savannah. Um, <laughs> and so Framing Britney Spears, it is a tragic story about a small town girl who had a dream of becoming a celebrity. She goes to the Mickey Mouse Club. She becomes a dancer, becomes a performer, becomes a singer, strikes it big. She gets all of the fame and the sex and the money and, uh, that you could imagine and that her life fell apart. Literally just began to fall apart. And I don't share that to like, be like, ha, 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 Britney Spears. Like, guys, that's us. Like, there's a gazillion stories like that. And, and though we see that right there, we all tend that we know logically like, yeah, these things aren't going to satisfy us because the, the secular current is so strong. It's so easy to get sucked into this to where before even realizing it, we're carried downstream and into destruction. And so the question is this morning is how do we continue to follow Jesus in America when America is increasingly running hostile to the way of God? 
What should our response be? And here's the answer. It is to give ourselves to the simple and ordinary acts of non-participation. To give ourselves to the simple, ordinary acts of non-participation. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you two examples. Eric Liddell. Anyone seen Chariots of Fire? Okay. Eric Liddell. Chariots of Fire is about a true story about Eric Liddell, who was a follower of Jesus who ran in the Olympics. And if you know his story, leading up to his competition, Liddell was disheartened because he found out they were going to move his competition from a Saturday to a Sunday. And you're like, well, why is that a big deal? Because, again, Eric Liddell was a follower of Jesus who believed that the Sabbath was set aside to be holy. And so think about this. This guy's trained his whole life for this moment. His whole life. And he says, you know what? That's one of the Ten Commandments. God's given it to me. I have to believe it's for my good. I'm going to choose not to run if you do this on a Sunday. So this gets to the board. The board comes to him and they say, do you realize if you don't run after all the investment people put in you, you're going to be shaming your king and your country? To which he responds by saying, actually, I run for a greater king in a greater country. And eventually the board changes their mind. They move it to a different day and he gets to run. That is a great picture of non-participation. I don't care if it's normal. I don't care if anybody else is doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not running on a Sunday. Um, here's another example. This is a, from a famous picture from World War II. And right there in the circle, you see a guy named August Landmaster who's at a Nazi rally in 1939, right? And look at this picture. Everyone's there. I owe Hitler arms in the air, like pledging allegiance to the Nazi empire. But there's just one man, arms crossed, like, nope, I'm not doing it. Now, what's funny, if you know the backstory of this, you know that he was dating a Jewish girl. It's always a Jewish girl that gets you, or a girl. Just a period, not just a Jewish girl, but a girl. It's always those Jewish girls. <laughs> it's like mom always said. Um, and so, but it's like, here he is. He's like, man, I'm sorry, there's Hitler, but she's hot. Like, I'm just not, I'm not going to do this. Right? And, and seriously, though, he looked at that, and, and he's thinking, look, I know what Hitler's about. I know what this is all about. And though this may be good for our country, like he's killing other people. And so even if all my family and my friends are saluting this guy and like singing his praises, like I'm not going to do it. That is a great act of non-participation. Now for us, listen, our acts of non-participation are going to be far less dramatic, right? And ordinary, and they're going to be much more run of the meal. And so here's an example of non-participation just in the day-to-day stuff of Jared Pickney's life or maybe in your life. It's like me yesterday looking on my, on my phone and here comes an ad about this Patagonia jacket that I've been wanting for a while. And I'm like, oh man, I've got a good jacket, but that's sweet. And it's got goose down feathers. I don't even know what that is, but I hear it's great. Um, and it'll keep me warm and it's really stylish. It's Patagonia. That's pretty nice, right? And I've got the money for it. And it was like below sub-zero like for like, you know, three hours. And so like, obviously I need a better jacket than I have now. But then I just looked and I said, you know, no, I've got a good jacket. I've got a good jacket. And I remember what Jesus said, that actually more stuff doesn't equal more happiness, but typically more anxiety. And it's better to give than receive. And so you know what? I'm just going to keep scrolling. Like that's an act of non-participation. Here's another example. It's refusing to laugh at inappropriate jokes. That's what she said. It's refusing to go there. Everybody else is laughing about it. But you know, deep down inside, that if Jesus was there, there's no way you would laugh at that because the very thing they're joking about is the very thing that led him to the cross to being crucified. 
And so it's just saying, you know what, I'm not going to participate in locker room humor. Even if I look stupid, even if I look smug. Here's another example. You wake up, there's your Bible, but there's your phone. And an act of non-participation is, you know what, rather than mindlessly scrolling through social media or responding to these text messages, I'm going to say, no, I'm going to start my day with Jesus. Or maybe you're dating someone and your parents aren't there. Got a chance to fool around a little bit. What's the big idea, right? It's just sex. But you say, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus and I have an incredibly high view of marriage and sexuality and therefore despite what The Weeknd or Ariana Grande says, I'm going to remain pure. These are all examples of non-participation. It's just a quiet, subtle rebellion. Christ-like rebellion. It's not a soapbox. It's not a hashtag. It's just a sorry, hey, I'm not going to lie in order to make that sell. It's just a, hey, hey, sorry, I'm not going to mess around with you. I, I just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to blow my money on that or whatever it may be. And listen to me very carefully, guys. When you choose to live this way, there are two things you can absolutely expect is going to happen. One is you will upset people. It does not matter how kind that you do this. If you try to stand when everyone else around you is bowing down, what will happen is you will be upsetting the status quo and your non-participation will make people defensive and angry and insecure and they'll begin to hound you for it. This just popped into my mind. I don't know why because I'm not vegan, but it's kind of like vegans. From my experience, we have two people on our staff that are vegan, two people on our missional community that are vegan. And it's like, as soon as meat eaters find out someone is vegan, they give them the third degree, don't they? And you're like, dude, I just want to eat plants. What's the big idea? You know, what is that? It's about upsetting the status quo. Oh, you think you're better, right? Or whatever else it may be. And that's just a silly little example. But you choose to stand when everyone else is bowing, it's going to upset people. And then secondly, if you choose to stand when everyone else is bowing, you need to know this, it's going to cost you. It will cost you. It could cost you a job. It could cost you a date. It could cost you friends. It could cost you money. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he says, All, listen to this. This verse has wrecked me this week. All who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So, what does that mean if you're not facing persecution? All who desire to live a godly life, to stand when everyone else bows, you will face persecution. And I know for us it may not be in the form of physical persecution, but it absolutely will come in the form of emotional or relational or financial persecution. And so this begs the question as we end is how do we do this? I mean, it's, I don't want to just give you a sermon. It's like raw, 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 stand, right? Like non-participation, let's go do it. Like how do we really do this? Because you're going to walk out these doors and get hit in the face again with something that is completely, totally opposite to the way of Jesus. So how are we going to do this? How do we make a stand when everyone else bows? Two things I'll say quickly is, one, you have to make a commitment to stand in community. Guys, this is non-optional. Notice how when we look in our story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are always mentioned together. They're always in a crew, always in a posse. And when they stand together, they make a stand for God. Please hear me today. Hear me. Commitment always lasts longer in community. If you don't believe me, look at the people who start going to the gym with somebody versus someone who doesn't. 
Commitment always lasts longer in community. That's because you were not designed to do this life alone. Every week, this is why we tell you to get involved in a missional community. Why do we beat that drum so much? Because we could have the best musicians on stage and the best preaching, but this is only one hour a week. And so you're going to come to this, and you're going to walk out those doors into a cold, dark world, and then like embers in a fire, if you are alone, you're going to be scattered, and it's just a matter of time, I'm telling you, before your passion that you once had for Jesus is going to begin to burn out. We see it all the time. People who fall away from Jesus are people who are not connected deeply in community. And so if you're not in a missional community, please get involved in one. The best way to do that, there's th- I'll give you three options right now, just so you know if you if you're really want to apply this message. You can either go to our website, crossingparagol.com, forward slash missional community, and you can find one that way. Or you can meet with our Next Steps missional community there at the welcome table in the foyer, and they will help you find one right after the service is over. Or we are actually starting a pilot missional community. We've never done this before, but every other month we will have basically this three-week kind of immersion experience where we'll have child care, food there, and for an hour after the second service, you can come and you can learn what is a missional community, why is it important, and then you will have a group of people who hold your hand, metaphorically speaking, and find a group that works for you and your family. Like, that's how committed we are. Like, we want to put our money where our mouth is here. Like, we want to do a much better job as pastors and as leadership team to make it easy for you to get in community, because we believe if you're going to stand in a godless society like Babylon, you've got to stand in community. Secondly, and finally, Not only do you need to make a commitment to stay in a community, you need to develop a conviction that Jesus stands with you in the fire. Where do I get this from? Well, look back with me. Daniel chapter 3, and we'll end here. Verse 25, I told you we were coming back to this. Daniel 3, verse 25. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. But look what happens. The king comes and he says, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth, look at this looks like a son of the gods. Who does Nebuchadnezzar see? He doesn't see a son of the gods. He sees the son of God. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And the reason this is so important, guys, is listen. Just as Jesus came and stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their fire... He will stand with you in your fire. He will stand with you. You know what that means? Please hear me. We're almost done. What that means is no matter what you're going through, no matter how scary or lonely or dangerous or dark it may be, you can experience God's presence in that moment. You can experience the peace of God. You can experience joy. You can experience, look at this, freedom even in the fire. Notice Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bound anymore. They're just walking around free, right there in the furnace. And if you ever doubt that this is true, it is why every single week we take of communion, because communion is a reminder that Jesus Christ was thrown into the furnace for you. Jesus came to this earth and he refused to bow down to the idols of this world, to bow down to Caesar, and he was thrown into the furnace. He was thrown onto this cross where he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and my sins, and then he rose from the dead so that we can know, guys, listen to this, that no matter what comes our way, that if we will trust Jesus just like him, we will come out better than we went into it. Do you realize that? That when you go into the fire of Jesus, all it does... Is purify you like gold. 
so that you come out shining and looking not like the world, but more and more like Jesus himself. God, it is when this settles into our hearts that we can begin to take a stand even when everyone else bows down. It is only whenever this settles into our heart can we begin to say, man, like even if I'm rejected, even if I'm persecuted, even if I'm the last one standing, I can keep standing because I know Christ is with me. The Apostle Paul was such a great example of this. The Apostle Paul had to be the most frustrating person to an enemy of the gospel because they would come to him and say, hey, Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. And what would he say? To die is gain. All right? Well, we're going to let you live. To live is Christ. All right? We're going to pelt you with rocks and drag you out to a beach to suffer. And what does Paul say? I consider the sufferings of this present world aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Which beach you guys when I go to? How incredible is that, man? The Apostle Paul was a man of non-participation. He was a man who was able to stand when everyone else bowed because he was a man who had a rock-solid conviction that Christ was with him, and therefore no matter what happened, he was going to be okay. As we end today, I just want to ask you, do you have that same level of conviction? Do you have that same confidence that Christ really is enough for you, no matter what season of life you're in, no matter what fire you're facing? If you do not know Jesus in this way, I pray that today, that before you leave, you will. Jesus wants to be with you in the fire, just like he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the Apostle Paul. Guys, a fire is coming. And I'm telling you, your job's not going to get you through it. Your kids aren't going to get you through it. Your spouse isn't going to get you through it. Your big bank account's not going to get you through it. There's a fire that is coming that will be so large that Christ alone will be the one who will help get you through it. As you're standing with him in community, that's what will allow you to stand the test of time. And so if you don't know Jesus in that way, listen, here's the good news. Jesus doesn't need your big faith for you to stand in the fire. He just needs you to take what little bitty, insy, like tiny little seed that you can barely see faith placed in him. And he'll be enough for you. And so if you're here today and you have doubts and you have questions and you have concerns and you're like, oh my gosh, like I, how many times have I like totally participated? Welcome to the club. And this is why we have to continually come back to Christ every single week and partake of communion and remember the truth, guys, that even if we don't feel it, we remember the truth that just as we take this bread, which represents the perfect life of Christ, and this juice, which represents his blood shed for us, that, is, that physically goes into our body, that Christ is just as present with us inside of us as that bread and juice. Actually, more so than that, because the Bible talks about he is in every fiber of our being through the Holy Spirit. So we have him here with us. He's not physically here, but he's here. And so be reminded of that truth as you take communion today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to say this and, and we'll be done. We don't have many closed doors to you here, but this is one door that we do close to you because by taking it, God's not going to answer some prayer. He's not going to love you more. He's not going to forgive you of your sins. We take this as followers of Jesus because it's a sign. It's a picture of what Jesus has already done for us. It's a, it's a picture of hope that we have in him. And so rather than receiving communion today, if you've never really received Christ, I'm going to ask that you do that today. I'll be up here in the front. Adam will be here. You can talk with anybody you came with. We'd love to help you with next steps. 
For those who are here and who are followers of Jesus, you can take this, as always, whenever you're ready. And then after that, the band will come forward and lead us in a song. We'll worship, and then we'll be dismissed. And so I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come forward, if you will. I want to pray over our time. We'll partake of communion and then sing and be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here this morning. And I do pray that we would not be a people who are hearers of the word, but doers of the word. I pray that the lesson this morning would would take root in my heart and the heart of my brothers and sisters. As we go out into this world, I pray that we would be those who stand in community and that we realize that you stand with us even in the fire and that you are more than enough. God, I know that for me personally, just in front of my brothers and sisters, there are areas where I'm constantly tempted to compromise and just do what the world does because, man, if we don't do that, we're going to get left behind. That's what I feel like, at least. I'm going to fail. I'm going to be a failure of a father, a failure of a husband, a failure of a pastor if I don't just do what the world's telling me to do. And I know that if that's a temptation, I feel that everyone here feels it or feels it as well. And I just pray that you would minister to each of us where we are, that you would open our eyes to see where we are participating with things that are subtly but surely doing damage to our soul and the soul of our own children and those around us. And I pray that as we take communion, that we would not leave here in shame or guilt, but that we leave here, Jesus, feeling fully forgiven. And we would feel that there is, as Paul says, therefore now no condemnation. And we would know that you have nothing but, but, but thoughts of joy and happiness and delight towards us. And that it is from that place, Jesus, that we would draw, um, that we would pull closer to you and that we would stand and that we'd be the men and women that you've called us to be. And that as a result, other people in our city and our workplace and our neighborhoods and at the, the ball fields and wherever would see something different in us. And as a result, would be drawn into a relationship with you. For those who maybe are in this room right now who do not have a relationship with you, maybe they have religion, but they don't have a relationship, I pray that Holy Spirit, you just prick their heart right now. That you would help them to see they've been deceived. But that they would also feel your love and the great invitation they have right now at this very moment to begin a new life with you. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.